together. Lord, we pray that as we come and open the words and expound the word together, that your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. That how can a young man keep his way pure, but guarding it according to your word, that I have stored up your word in my heart, that I might not sin against you. So may your word come alive in Jesus' name. Amen. May be seated. Thank you, worship team, and thank you all the AV crews and ushers and kitchen crews and Sunday school teachers and everybody. Thank you so much for serving together. Thank you for making a worship possible for us every Sunday because you serve and you participate. And for others, we really want to invite you to participate as well and be a part of the church family, be a part of this church life. We need you to come together uh, to to, to affect the work of uh, God, to build a vibrant church that reproduces vibrant churches locally and globally. You know, Jesus called, Jesus called disciples to follow him when he began his ministry by saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So he invited disciples to follow him and to open their hearts, to allow God to rule in their hearts. That's when the kingdom of God, that's when the authority of the king begins to exercise within the hearts of the individuals. But of course, it extends all the way to the future kingdom where Christ, where God will be the king of all the universe, of everything. That's when the complete surrender of everybody who are called by God, who are chosen by God, will be with him forever. When he, when he called people to follow him, people begin to come to him, and Jesus took them with him to the mountain and began to teach them what it means to be a kingdom person now, what it means to live and enter into the kingdom of God, what it means to be a child of God. And we call it the Sermon of the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. And we begin to embark on this series on the Sermon of the Mount. And last week, Pastor Wilson, uh, Pastor Henley, preached about the uh, Beatitude. Lay the foundation and talk about the three first Beatitudes. And today, I want to invite you to read together the Beatitudes, the eight of them. Uh, not just the three that we're preaching today, but look at it in a wholesome way. Okay? And we invite you, as Pastor Terrence reminds us, to take it to your heart to recite that eight Beatitudes together and meditate on that so that we can grow together. Okay, can you open your Bible to uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 to 11? Verses 3 to 11. I'm going to invite you to stand as you read God's Word together as a show of respect for God's Word and also allow God's Word to minister in our hearts together. Matthew 5, verses 3 to 11 together. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You may be seated. In the last week, we touched on the, on, on, the, on the beatitude on the blessed of the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
when we acknowledge that spiritually we are bankrupt and we need God and without God we can't really move forward, we are blessed because we begin to receive the kingdom of heaven. We begin to see the whole kingdom opens to us when we acknowledge that we need God. And when we do that, verse 4 says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. When we mourn for our sins, when we mourn for our disrespectful attitudes, our obstinance of refusal to receive the King of heavens, the creator of the universe, and when we begin to acknowledge that we are in that agonizing state, we are able to be comforted because the King of glory will come and comfort us and bring salvation to us. Verse 5 says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. When we are as meek as Jesus, when we are broken people who are healed by Christ and live at peace with God, with ourselves and with others, we inherit the earth today. We are able to live at peace in where we are. We learn how to manage things and we learn how to manage tension because we're at peace with God, with ourselves, and with others. But the world is not perfect. The world is not permanent. We know that ultimately the coming kingdom will be what we will inherit together with Christ and we will reign with Him forever and ever. And today, we want to look at verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. If you look at the trans transliteration of the message, it says, you are blessed when you are worked up a good appetite for God, for He is food and drink in the best meal you ever eat. There's a transliteration of the scriptures to, to get, get a taste of what it means that God is so tasteful that only He can satisfy me. That's what Eugene Peterson meant when he translated that, that uh, verse 6 uh, in their message, transliteration. But what is hunger and thirst for righteousness? What is righteousness? Righteousness means to, to conform to the standard of God. When we say that we are hungry and thirsty for righteousness, we are basically saying, I will do God's will. I want to do God's will. But you know what? The B editor says more than that. The B editor says, hunger and thirst for righteousness. It talks about the passion. There is a passion. There is a drive for righteousness. There is a longing in our hearts that we want to honor God by doing His will and doing what pleases Him. It's like Psalm 42, verses 1 and 3 that says, As a deer pants for the flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? Show me your spirituality. Show me the, the, the fruits of believing in God. And this psalmist is crying out before God, God, I long for you. I yearn for you. I want to live with you. I want to lift you up. I want to live according to your standard. And just as hunger and thirst constantly cry out for satisfaction, there is a strong and constant desire for the righteous to do the will of God because the righteous have an appetite for the things of God. You know, I think John Piper puts it the best. 
He says we are most satisfied when God is most glorified. One of the often quoted statements that he put up, so theologically sound and strong, we are most satisfied when God is most glorified. When we do his will, when there's a hunger and thirst, there's a longing for God to lift up his name, to do his will, and to do according to his standard, God is glorified and we are satisfied. Because nothing else in this world will satisfy you for long. It satisfies you for a while. It satisfies you for a, a moment, for a stage of life, but not permanently, but only God ultimately who is able to satisfy you. Just like First Peter chapter 2, verses 2 and 3 says, Like newborn infants, longing for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. There's that yearning, there's a longing to be satisfied like a baby. Always, always longing for milk. Nothing else but milk because the baby needs milk to grow. The baby needs milk to be satisfied. You know, the righteousness here carries two meaning. One, in a personal life. Okay? The strong desire personally to honor God, to please God, to do what God wants, to live up to the will of God. That's a personal righteousness that people who follow God, people who follow Jesus, should have that longing. Do you have that? Is this stage of your spiritual life having that longing in you that you long to please God, you long to do what God wants, and you long to do God's will? When you have that, you know what? out of that personal life of, of righteousness, it grows into the desire for the righteousness of the land, social justice. In a world that is unrighteous and unjust, when we have the personal rightness before God, naturally we look around us and say, this is not right, that is not right. See what can do to, to right the wrong and to bring justice, God's justice to them. See, they cannot be separated. And this is a proper desire and you will be fulfilled. It will not be fulfilled immediately. It can be only fulfilled to a certain extent in an imperfect world. But ultimately, when God comes to establish his kingdom of righteousness, it will all be established. How do we hunger and thirst for righteousness and be satisfied? It begins, it begins with commitment to do God's will. It just, it, it doesn't happen spontaneously. It doesn't happen because we talk about that. It doesn't happen. The Sermon of the Mount, the kingdom characteristics, doesn't happen just because we embark in four months on a journey of Sermon of the Mount. Talking about that is a beginning, but you know what? You have to make that commitment to do God's will. And develop that spiritual life so that there's an intensity growing to be more like him, to be more conforming to God's standard. As Paul says in Romans chapter 6, he says we should yield ourselves to be members as instruments of righteousness. The more we yield, the more organs we yield, hands and feet and, and, and mouth and, and nose and ears and eyes and all the instruments that we have that God gave us, 
to glorify Him, the more we surrender them to them, the more we are committed to do God's will. That's how we begin. And the Spirit, Holy Spirit, will lead the believer into righteousness by reminding us of God's Word, by reminding of our state of spiritual life, by reminding our relationship with God and say, no, this is not right. This is not right. Stay close to God. This is not right. This is not biblical. Stay close to God. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Then we become closer and closer to do God's will together. You know, all of us, all of us, there's a longing in all of us. The choices to fulfill those longings are endless in a consumer society. Whenever there's a need, someone will feel it, someone will sell it, someone will make it for you. We are in a consumer society. Products and merchandise are made to meet your needs. But righteousness? Righteousness? Do you have an appetite for righteousness? What is the flavor of righteousness? Righteousness is hard to swallow. Righteousness denies us oftentimes the worldly funds and pleasure. It, it makes us feel bad about our ungodly actions because it shines in darkness. And for, for many people, it is out of fashion, it is politically incorrect, it is unpopular. Who needs righteousness? How do you spice up righteousness to be more appetizing? Where do we begin? I want to point you to two areas. One, we must be aware of the lure of self-righteousness. That's our problem, Christians, who are in the kingdom, who knows the kingdom rules and characteristics, begin to point and finger of other people and say, I'm holier than you, I'm better than you, I'm in, you are out. That's a big problem in the days of Jesus when the hypocrites were emulating when the hypocrites were really taking that lead in that direction. Watch out for self-righteousness. But secondly, where do we begin? Where do we begin? We begin from the very beginning by acknowledging that we are poor in spirit, we are bankrupt spiritually, and we need Jesus, we need the gospel. That's where it begins. That when we acknowledge we need God and mourn deeply for our shortcomings and emulate the meekness of Christ to be broken in Him and to be healed by Christ and to be at peace with Him and with ourselves and with others and know how to live in this land, then we will begin to embrace righteousness by conforming to God's standard and by doing His will. And that is that song that we often sing in our worship, Lord, I need you, oh, I need you. Every hour I need you, my one defense, my righteousness, oh God, how I need you. That's where it begins. It's not beginning by the political agenda. It's not beginning by, it's not beginning by the party that you join. It's not beginning by the groups that you belong to. It is really beginning with God. It begins with God. You know, today we are overwhelmed by evils and violence around us in this land and around the world, around the globe. It seems there is little difference we can make, right? What, what, what can we do? In, in, in California, 
among 36 million people, we are less than 1,000 people here. 400 in English service, 450 maybe. What can we do? What impact can we leave in this world? There is a, there's a political system that is cumbersome and complex. We don't even know how to play the game. There is a mainstream and media and social media and popular trend and, and everything is against the Sermon of the Mount. What can we do? I want you to propose something that you may have forgotten for a while. We can pray. We can pray. I know what you're thinking. You know, let's do something. Don't just sit there. Do something, okay? Prayer is important, but let's do something. Yes, we must do something. But if your actions have been effective, all the problems have been solved. If all your activism has been effective, there's no problem in this world. There are things in this world that even with the best intention and the best effort that you can put in, it's not going to happen. It takes time. It takes for the hearts to change. It takes for the, for the time to mature. It takes for the Kairos moment to arrive. It takes people to recognize that that path is that end. Then hearts begin to open up and people begin to turn around. We can pray. We can pray for such moment to come upon us, to come upon our land, to come upon our city, to come upon our church. We can pray. We can pray for such moment to come upon our marriage, to come upon our family. When we are that locked, there's no way out. Nobody's backing down. We're just butting heads. We can pray. We can pray for God to revive our church that will recognize where we are in Christ. We can pray. I know for some Christians, pray is so useless, so, so helpless. What is good about prayer? Well, yesterday, the world celebrated uh, the, 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 the tearing down of the Berlin Wall. In 1989, November 9th, it came down. It came down not because of the political and the diplomatic work of some career politicians or diplomats. They have done that for many, many years. The whole Western world and the USSR, if you still remember the terminology, the Russian blocs have been at odds with each other, Cold War. That's politically. But spiritually, Christians have been praying that God, there's an open door, brought, there's an open door for us to share the gospel because there was no freedom in there. Western churches, Eastern churches have been praying, praying for the iron curtain to come down and praying for the bamboo curtain to come down as well, and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. And it did come down in 1989. And in 1991, the whole USSR block just dissolved. Not because of some warfare, not because of some weapon, but it imploded. It blew up from within. They can't hold it anymore. Yes, politicians can be used by God. Yes, the time and environment can be used by God, but ultimately, 
the prayer, the prayer of the churches, the prayer of the Christians, continue to ask God to change heart, to change time, to change the people, and allow people to do what God wants. And that takes down the wall. That takes down the whole West, uh, the, the whole USSR blocks. You know, when, when believers bewail our own sinfulness, and we bewail the society's sinfulness, and pray that God will send a revival to clean things up, they demonstrate a hunger and thirst for righteousness. Pray. Pray. Our appetite for God is often buried in an avalanche of information and activities that distract and erase our spiritual vitality like never before. The impact of sermon after worship has never been erased so fast and so quickly like never before. 50 years ago, 40 years ago, 30 years ago, the, the memories of the, of, the, of the sermons after worship, the retention rate has been so much higher. But now, nowadays, because of information overload, it, it just gets erased so easily, so quickly. It leaves very little impact today. Today, I want to challenge you. For the sake of hunger and thirst for righteousness, for the sake that you may be satisfied and be filled by God, would you consider to do a trade-in? You see, there's no way to penetrate you when, when you are fully saturated with social media and everything, and, and the first thing you do after worship is to open up that, that, that web and that site and begin to connect and, 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 and just... Tons of choices and challenges will be ahead of you. And the, the impact of the worship, the impact of the Word of God is so minimized that it, it's barely visible. It's barely visible. Would you do a trade-in? I don't think you can live like that and be hunger and thirst for righteousness. I don't think you can live like that and be satisfied. If we are satisfied, we're going to have less depression in this world. We have less mental illness in this world. We have more in-depth relationship. But our relationship is getting more and more superficial. So superficial. And we thought that we have many groups on the social media. And many people liked what we do. But they are so, so superficial. And we buy into that false image. You need to do a trade-in. I'm not asking to give up those things. I'm asking you to surrender some of that so that you can whip out the appetite to hunger and thirst for righteousness. To hunger and thirst for righteousness. Would you consider that? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. The message says, you are blessed when you care. At the moment of being careful, you find yourself cared for. When you are full of care for other people, and inadvertently, you are also cared for by God. God extends His care for you. You know, mercies belong to God. Luke 6.36 says, be merciful even as your Father is merciful. 
Mercy is God's loving response to the needs of those whom He loves. God's loving response to the needs of those whom He loves. Who is that? That's everybody. For God so loves the world that He gives His only begotten Son. What do you mean by being merciful so that we shall receive mercy? See, when we know our inadequacy and dependence and weaknesses, when we receive grace and mercy from God, we tend to show mercy to others. And these are the people who are called blessed. They are blessed because they place showing mercy above their own rights. They show mercy to those who are in need without hostility. They show kindness to others and heal wounds above their own rights. No wonder they are blessed. Now, those who show mercy are not merciful by nature. We don't have that in us. We have limited ability to extend mercy, but we are able to be merciful because we have been shown mercy. There's a great example in Christ Jesus on the cross, and therefore we live in constant dependence on the Lord so that we can be merciful. It's not natural. It doesn't come naturally to us. We have to see an example and Jesus bending over, washing the feet of the disciples and saying, learn from me. And Jesus inviting others and come, come unto me, all you who are heavy laden and burdened, and I will give you rest. And it is Christ who are able to show us mercy that we can extend mercy to other people. And because they understand mercy and show mercy to others, the word of God says they shall obtain mercy from God. See, ultimately, it looks forward to the coming of the king and the day of judgment when by his mercy they will be welcomed through the judgment and into the kingdom. That's the ultimate mercy of God that he ushers us into his presence. It's all by his mercies. It's all by his grace. That's the ultimate mercy that we can receive from him. Today, we continue to receive mercies from God as we reflect on the cross of Jesus and extend that mercy to other people people. Now remember, this is not a transaction that those who receive mercy not because they did enough good deeds in the exchange for God's mercy. No. But because they understand how important mercy is in their spiritual pilgrimage. And having entered into that state of grace, were eager to share it with other people. It's only by the God's by the mercies of God that we are able to extend that mercy to other people, not because we have earned any merits. It is not like the Costco credit cards that get you 4% of reward points when you buy gasoline from Costco. Then you accumulate points, and at the end of the year, you can exchange for cash or for some merchandise. No, that's transaction. The mercy we receive today, it is a spiritual awakening. We are awakening to the fact that I need mercy, I get mercy, and I need to give mercy to other people. That's a spiritual awakening. And that's how we become merciful to other people. How do we apply mercy, merciful lives, into you and my lives? I think we need to know more of God's mercy. The more we know God's mercy, the more we are merciful the more we understand the grace of God, the more we are able to be gracious to other people. Every day, 
people every day, when you confess your sins before God, that is a show of mercy. Every day, when you have the privilege to come before God and ask for God's forgiveness, and God forgives you, that is a reminder of mercy. Mercy extended to you and me every day. And because we are recipients of mercy, we must be merciful to other people. And because we have been shown forgiveness, we must be forgiving to other people. Be merciful, for you shall receive mercy. Remember that unmerciful servants, servants who owe the master 10,000 talents, when he, he was forgiven that debt, he asked for extension, but the master said, okay, I'll forgive the debt. And he turns around and saw another servant who owed him just 10 denarii. That's just a fraction, a fraction of what he owed the master. And he put him into prison until he pays out. And the master was so disappointed with him that he, he ultimately put him into the prison and said, pay out that 10,000 talents before you can come out. It's a way to remind us that whatever we have in Christ and the mercy that is extended to us is so exuberant amount that whatever other people has been offended, that whatever offense that we have today is in no comparison with him. In no comparison. If you put it in today's terminology and try to understand uh, the, the, the 10 denarii a worker's labor today, minimum wage, $15, 8 hours a day, $120. With the same amount, the 10,000 talents, uh, one talent is a laborer's 20 years of wages. 20 years of wages, multiplied by $10,000. You talk about $6 billion. A $6 billion debt is forgiven, and you refuse to extend the payback for the debt of $120. That's the irony that Jesus was trying to portray to you and me. And in, in, in a sense, he's basically saying that there's no reason that we cannot extend mercy to other people when you allow God to forgive you and to call you his child. You know, the obstacle to extend merciful acts sometimes is a callous heart. There are just too many needs out there but people, if we just begin with one, you make a difference in this one individual. That's all we can begin. Begin with one and extend the kindness and that mercy to that individual. Sometimes the obstacle to extend merciful acts is a sense of entitlement. I'm entitled to all these cares and blessings and goodness in life. But again, as we come before God and say, I'm poor in spirit, I'm spiritually bankrupt, I don't deserve all that, it is by your mercy, then we tend to be more merciful with other people. And, and finally, I just want to apply that in, to some of us here, that be merciful to your loved ones. Sometimes we are very merciful with other people, but not our loved ones. We have high expectation of our loved ones. We have high expectation of them, and we are pretty strict and mean with them sometimes. Be gracious to them. Sometimes our loved ones get the worst of us. Learn how to be merciful to your loved ones as well. 
And finally, Jesus continues his teaching by reminding us, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The message transliterated in this way, you are blessed when you get your inside world, your mind and heart, put right, inside world put right in your mind and heart, then you can see God in the outside world. When we talk about the pure in the heart, we are talking about someone who not only is pure, inner purity, but the main focus on being pure is singleness of the mind. It is the undivided loyalty to God and His way. That singleness, that God alone, that God only will bring us to that purity of heart because there's nothing else, there's nobody else but God. And because when we honor God in that way, we want to live as pure as we can, as close to Him as we can, and to do His standard and to do His will as well. Pure, single, heartily. But it says pure in heart. The heart is used in the Bible to talk about the will and the choices. So the pure in heart means the, the decisions one makes, the desires one have, the thoughts and intentions of the will, and the, they are all untarnished by sin. And the will is determined to be pleasing to God. It's that single-heartedness that I want to please God. I want to lift up God. I want to have a high view of God in my life. That's the purity. Blessed are the pure. As Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4 says, Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully? And to do that, to have pure in heart in order to see God, there's nothing short of a transformation of the heart. From the heart of flesh to the pure heart. You talk about born again. You have to be born again in order to see God. You have to be born again in order to be pure in your heart. But who can see God? The Bible says no one has ever seen God. John chapter 1, verse 18. But Jesus reveals God. No one has ever seen God. In the Old Testament, in the Bible, oftentimes God manifests himself differently. He manifests himself before Moses, and Moses sees his back. Because God says, if you see me, you will die. And when Israelites were, were beholding the glory of God, the glory of God filled the mountains. That's all they see, the light, the glory, thunder and cloud as a way to manifest to the people that He's a righteous God, He's a mighty God, He's a sovereign God, He's a loving God. And Isaiah, when he was in the time of crisis, the heavens opened up to him, he saw God sit us on the throne. No one has ever seen God, but the Sermon of the Mount talks about the current reality. It says those blessed are the pure. It's in present tense. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Yes, we shall see God ultimately when we are with God again in eternity. But he says it is a current reality. What do we see as we shall see God? Well, we shall see God in all the events and circumstances of life. 
We shall see answered prayers as a sign of God's presence. We shall see His provision and His protection. And we shall see transformation in our lives as a way of seeing God in the events and circumstances of life. And of course, the Bible promises even more that someday we will see God when we are with Him in eternity, when we will be transformed to be like Jesus' body. How can we gain a pure heart? You can't go further. You need to go back. You need to go back to the beatitude. You need to go back to the poor in heart. It starts with God. It starts with conversion. It starts with born again. When you are born again, then God's presence, God's reality will be with you. And He will guide you and carry you through until He comes again and we will see Him face to face in eternity as we grow in Him. My message today, I just want to summarize in this way, that Jesus calls us to extend our kingdom life in Christ towards righteousness and mercy and purity. He continues his teaching on the beatitude. Now he extends into righteousness, into mercies, and into purity together. Let me just make two applications. One, ask Jesus to purify his church. You know, I don't know where you stand in the teaching of the beatitude. Sometimes, as I said, beatitude is lost in the information overload of our world today. Is it an outdated moral teaching? Or is it a transforming power of the gospel? See, the power of poor in spirit means you elevate God and Jesus' gospel. Because you need the gospel and you need God, you elevate Him. The power of mourning it is a reflection of what you cared about. What you cared about, you mourn. What you don't care about, you don't mourn. It doesn't affect you at all. When you care about relationship with God, when the relationship is distant, you mourn for it. When you care about the, the future of your children, the future of their education, when they don't do well in school, you mourn about that. When you care about the church, when you say the church is not working well together, it's not unified, it's not glorifying the Lord, you mourn for the church. What you care, you mourn. That's the power of mourning. The power of being meek is that it reminds, of, it reminds you of who you are and, and where you were as you began with Jesus and who you are today. And in that lens you look at other people because if we do not have the meekness of christ we always look at people from where we are today and this is where we are today i've journeyed with jesus for 40 some years and this is what i've gone through my brokenness and my healings and my my nurturing and and i look at other people from that standard but when you are meek you go back to the beginning you go back to the starting point and say, you know, that's how I started. That's how I started. That's how everybody started. Let's be gracious and allow time for them to grow to where you are today. Be meek. As we reflect on the hunger and thirst for righteousness, it reveals our lack of righteousness and calls us to lean on Jesus' for righteousness that is reckoned to us by his substitution of death on the cross. 
And because Jesus did the righteous thing on the cross, and we are the undeserving recipients of His grace, we can't help but look at things and events in this world and say, it is not right. It is not right. Let's do it right. And today I want to call, I just want to speak to you to our situations and to, to Christians today. You know, vaping and marijuana and many things are legalized. An age limit is set to protect the minors, then we feel good. And as an adult, we can do anything that is pleasing to our eyes. Sounds familiar? When we preach through the books of Judges, that's the most repeated phrase. That's the darkest age of the life of the Israelites. And sometimes we justify our actions on I can discern it. I'm adult now. And sometimes we, 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 we you know, we uh, based on our, our, our decisions on the freedom that we choose. But unfortunately, the freedom we choose often take us down the wrong paths. And even as Christians, with clear instruction of God's word, we give in to the weakness of our flesh. When there's enough accessibility when, there, when, when the popular culture and media repeat the statement enough, it becomes acceptable, it becomes right. And we give in to the appeal of new gimmicks and new experiences. Many of us grew up with abundance. We have no worries about things of the world. But things all provided, and guess what? We get bored. <laughs> we are more, not more thankful, we just get more bored. We want new experiences, we want new venture. We want to take to the next level. We want new fantasies. Or else we get even more bored. So we keep seeking adrenaline-pumping activities to keep excited. But are they drawing you closer to God or are they drawing you away from God? And I just want to point you back to John Piper's statement. We are most satisfied when God is most glorified. Pray. Pray for our church. Pray for us, kingdom people, that we will emulate the beatitude. And secondly, pray. Pray unceasingly. You know, there are a lot of things that you cannot impact, and there are things that you can, but pray, because there are many things that are beyond our control. Pray for our church. Pray for ourselves. Pray for our church that it is not only superficial vibrancy, that yes, many people, yes, many programs, yes, a lot of things are happening, but is it just a superficial expansion and growth and expand it to another building, 14,000 square feet? Is it only superficial or actually, our growth is deep and wide. It's deep and wide. I, I, I pray that our worship, our prayer, and our relationship with God is not touch and go. Many, many of our events are touch and go. Many, many worships are touch and go. We come and touch and go. That's it. It's all gone. But today, we need to pray that it will be deep and wide. Deep and wide. And it begins by obeying the Beatitudes. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to reveal, to reveal our condition honestly, 
so that we can just pray before you honestly and able to grow deep in Christ because that is called discipleship. That we are not consumers of good music, consumers of nice presentation, consumers of good services provided for us, for our children, for our family. But we want to be disciples of Jesus Christ. And the only way we can decide to be disciple is to grow deep in Christ, to follow Jesus, to be like Him through the kingdom teaching of the Sermon of the Mount. Father, I pray that you will leave that thoughts and plant that seeds in our minds and continue to stir in our heart until we are aligned with your calling. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank <laughs> you.